I'm Carrie Benedett, and this is my podcast, Thriving Matters, where you will find tools to revitalise you and your relationships, whether at work or in your personal life. Well, a little bit about me. I'm an education consultant specialising in emotional intelligence, and I use creative approaches that empower people with proven processes. I'm known for my high energy, passion and compassion for those in need of help. And I like to shine a spotlight on what we can do. I'm here to bring positivity, confidence and strength every day, everywhere. My mantra in life has been, let's give it a red hot shot. Good evening, everyone. Carrie Benedett here. It's Thriving Matters Studio and uh, our little um, pre-teaser there um, was all about girls are just going to have fun. They're going to rule the world. And we have one of Australia's most amazing young Generation Z lasses on the end here. Yasmin Pill, you can tell how old I am just by my language. So <laughs> you, you are very welcome. Who calls you a lass? That's an unusual term, isn't it? <laughs> a beautiful young lady. So welcome, Yasmin. Thanks for joining us tonight. Thank you so um, much. Excited to be here. Oh, it's, it's an absolute pleasure to meet you and to have you as a guest tonight. And Adriano, you um, you have a great um, experience within social media, within education, and so many of the listeners tonight, I am sure, know all about you, and uh, we're looking forward to a rip-roaring conversation about intergenerational learning. Now, Thriving Matter Studio came out of COVID this year, and uh, when I decided I needed to entertain myself, I, um, I thought, why not talk to ordinary people who are doing some extraordinary things. And so that's what our conversation is all about within the education field, because you know, and I know that everyone has an opinion on education. Mm-hmm. Everybody thinks they know the answers. Mm-hmm. Everyone is has um, you know memories of their own education that fuel their, uh, their beliefs about it. So it sounds like you're talking about politics right now. I nearly got confused. I thought you were just describing situation <laughs> Well, there you go. Um, it's, it's mirrored, isn't it? So welcome to both of you. Um, so we're, we're going to have a great conversation tonight, but I should tell you a little bit about Yasmin. So I'm going to start at the other end, Adrian. I know you're the rose between the thorns tonight, but we'll start with a thorn on the other end there. Wow, that's harsh. <laughs> No, um, Yasmin. Look, I love how you are described. You are, you've been described as the human megaphone for Generation Z. Yeah, for Gen Z. Is that right? Pretty fun, isn't it? <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. And you have such an amazing background in advocacy, in um, voice finding and contributing to youth voice, not just in Australia here within government and organisations, but also. Across the uh, across the continents in APAC, and um, you've been on the UN uh, Commission of uh, of Status of Women as well. You have a number of roles uh, representing young Australians: um, a consultancy role, uh, volunteers uh, in many um, NGOs. Um, but you really um, are a youth, an international youth ambassador, and uh, I think we're going to have a great conversation tonight. How can we include youth's voice more in how we educate? Because education is so topical at the moment and we've seen some very, very interesting models of education occur in the last few months during the pandemic. So you are very welcome. And I probably haven't done your bio justice, but I think I think the conversation's going to only amplify that for us. <laughs> so welcome. It's an absolute pleasure to have met you face to face. We've actually met online, which is which is the way of the world at the moment. Yeah. So that is great. And we know that you have a distinguished and experienced career in education in a number of leadership roles. But perhaps the greatest leadership role that you are doing at the moment is in your own business um, since leaving, leaving, um, making a decision to leave education for the moment and start up your own um, your own business. Now, many of uh, our listeners will know you from Game Changers, mm-hmm. a very well-known podcast um, that, is, that is happening with your colleague um, from South Australia. From oh, New South Wales. Oh, New South Wales, sorry. Uh, Philip Cummins. Sorry, Philip, if you're listening. Um, <laughs> 
you're a partner in um, it's a school for tomorrow, and you've you've set that up as well. And you, the learning architect of a dynamic learning ecosystem titled Polaris. So that's an interesting uh, one to include as well. You have um, a great background in uh, volunteering, in education across continents, in the deep spiritual, social and emotional well-being of your students. Mm -hmm. And uh, you are all for student voice. So thank you for introducing me to Yasmin. <laughs> no uh, say that. So very welcome. So let's get on, hey? Let's thank get you very on. much. Well, we're talking about intergenerational learning. So I'm just going to throw it open and say to you, well, haven't we always had intergenerational learning? Interesting question. I would say that often hasn't been the case. And I think often the way that we've treated young people throughout not only the education system, perhaps in our parenting as well, is the kind of, you know, sit down, listen, be quiet and learn. And while I think there is some merit, obviously, in teaching the power of listening and respect, I think young people have so much to contribute that we often don't actually acknowledge in our institutions. And if we look to movements like the climate strikes, where young people are taking to the street from not only frustration, but fear about what might happen to their future, mm. and thinking about not only their lives but also their children and their children's children you can see how young people across all ages are already thinking dynamically and powerfully about the kind of world that they want to live in and as an example i have a 12 year old brother and he came up to me yesterday and he's designing his own political party and he's making it an environmental um, party and he's um, designing that already you know 12 years old so we can see that young people are already navigating this crazy world that we live in and already trying to kind of understand where they go into. Um, but what's really, really exciting about the power of young people, and perhaps I am now tooting my own horn as a young person, but I believe that we're truly, you know, in a way I call us the barometer of the future. We're already not only anticipating the trends, we are the trends. Um, and you've got not only young people teaching their grandparents how to use technology, but also even socially, um, the way that we're thinking, you know, we're called, even our generation, I think, has been referred to as generation compassion. Um, and for us, even when we think about social links and um, you know, movements like Black Lives Matter or um, feminism, this kind of stuff feels natural. It isn't, doesn't actually involve a pushback with young people. So I think the power of young people here is a lot of things, but it's that they're innovative, they are brave, they're bold, they're open-minded, and they're also willing to think outside of the box because they haven't yet been taught what the box is. And that's such a powerful source to use when you think about um, designing policy for the future or thinking about education as well. I think it's really interesting what you're sharing with us, Yasmin, um, because the question around has it always existed, well, learning across generations has existed and each generation has its own kind of learning paradigm. But I don't necessarily believe we've given too much space to intergenerational conversations, ones where the adults who are the gatekeepers right now, people that generally look like me, unfortunately, um, uh, uh, seem to have had a, an aversion to including young people as part of the conversation. And often, often we are in positions where we're making decisions that happen to young people as opposed to with young people. And what, what I've continued to be super impressed by with Yasmin is that she's a young individual that is not afraid to share her voice, but she does it in a way that is invitational. Yes, it's part soapbox, no doubt about it, because sometimes we do need to make some noise because we need to be that disruptive, right? Um, and I'm all for that. But it's also invitational, inviting people into a place of deep contemplation and, and, and holds up a mirror about what is currently happening and where are the gaps and where are the where are the opportunities for greater mm -hmm. inclusion around diversity and equity and so on what's interesting in in the context of schools is that if we think about the schooling system in this country a system that continues to be um hamstrung by an industrial model and, and wedded to this industrial model which is fundamentally a factory model and if we think about factories it's about producing things yeah. it's about doing it in order it's about doing it in a controlled manner and, and, and it's about control. 
the reality is our world doesn't work that way anymore. And the profoundness, the profoundness of young people today is they have found their voice. And I, and I attribute social media to, to that as well. They have found their voice in a way that I've never seen of any generation beforehand. And it's amplified on a level where it's the great equaliser in many ways and brings people into a dialogue. Now, we can disagree or we can agree or we can find some common ground, but they've got a platform. And, and has the sky fallen in? Has it really been that bad? I don't think so. And so my, my encouragement in this type of conversation and forum is I wish educational leaders and school leaders would have the courage to include young people at the decision-making table within their schools. So in the initial phase of their formative years, we are co-authors of their story, but ultimately we allow them into the, their own space and, 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 and into the permission, not us giving them the permission, them taking the permission to, to be the authors of their own story. And so my, I suppose my point there really is that we shouldn't dismiss the value of people like my age, right, in supporting young people or older, right? That we, we have value and that even though I'm a huge advocate for young people taking their voice and their agency yeah. and their advocacy and then owning their own destiny, I still feel that we have a place because mental, if we look at our, our deep, rich Indigenous communities, there's great wisdom to be learnt from elders, right? Yes. Um, and 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 at the same time, there's great wisdom to be learned from young people. Um, I'm a huge advocate for young people because I think they're remarkable, and I just think that it's time that we allow them to have a real seat at the table, so that they are part of their story, and that we're doing it with them, mm. not for them. Yeah, and if I could just quickly jump onto that, it's um I completely agree, and especially with learning from you know those that are older, um, couldn't agree more. And I think that wisdom is so powerful as well. Um, but it's interesting because I think even the way that we view young people and their ambition and their optimism is kind of like um, we've put the tap on and it's running, but we're not doing anything to collect all that value. And I remember um, doing a presentation about young people, and an older gentleman came up to me and he said. Oh well, this is this is very common to feel as a young person. I felt this way as a young man, and I wanted to get involved. But you just have to wait your turn, and it's such a shame because I thought to myself, if you felt that way, why are you not, or why are we not collectively pushing to actually change that? It's kind of become a rite of passage that young people are the ones that are frustrated and disillusioned and want things to move faster. So I think what Adriano said about that decision-making table is the real difference because young people have always had that ambition and always had that you know, open-mindedness and creativity and spirit, the difference is that our institutions, including our education system, but also parliament and whatnot, hasn't recognised that um, dynamic and that power as well. The, I'm just going to pop in here and say the intergenerational um, influence, I think it's all how you look at it. Um, and there are some, some of us who are older who think, Actually, I'm very happy to sit back and do some more learning here. There's some things here that are going to stretch my assumptions and beliefs because this was how I was brought up or this was my experience. So whilst we have we have that, we also have others who are saying, come on, let's hear your voice. We actually need to consider all things. And at the moment, what I've been um, uh, interested in are the number of discussion papers that are out talking about the future in uncertain times, especially for education, and using scenarios to actually back up the thinking or, or support the thinking process. What if this happens? What if this happens? What if this happens? And the what ifs are here. The what ifs this year have, have, have already arrived. And we're now looking at a whole range of different ways that people can find their voice and also challenge the status quo. And I think you make you both make very good points. We've got to find the voice, we've got to find the round table. You know, it's not all going to be Arthur and his knights around the round table. Uh, we'll, we'll, have, we'll have avatars around the table, whatever it is it's going to be. But um, Yasmin, tell us a little bit about um, your experience, say globally, say at the UN or at APEC or, you know, the Status for Women Committee that you're on. Tell us a little bit that how different is that to being here in Australia? 
Mm. Just a, and this is a, a question, everyone, without notice. Uh, Yasmin doesn't know that that one was coming, and that's just <laughs> a question we're talking. So. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, no, I think what was interesting is that I've had really kind of different experiences when I'm representing um, Australian young people on a global stage. And to be honest, most of them have kind of... Um, reiterated to me the way that young people are still put into a silo. And what I mean by that is that whether it be UN conferences or G20 conferences or APEC conferences, there's always been a youth section, which is fantastic. But I remember when I went to APEC and it was um, the strangest experience in Papua New Guinea on a cruise ship with Xi Jinping and Mike Pence. It was like something out of a TV show. Um, and I remember we we almost didn't let, we weren't even, we nearly didn't actually get into the room where the leaders were speaking, which is the whole reason why we were there as the youth cohort all across APEC. And finally, after pushing and pushing, we, the security said, okay, you can come in. And we got put right, basically squished up the back, a bit like sardines. And we, you know, heard from these leaders. But two days before, it was young people, um, we had developed a communique. So we had put forward what young people cared about. And we'd spent so many you know, hours laboring over this thing. We had presentations of, I remember there was a youth delegate in Thailand that was changing the way that farmers could work for it to, in order to get a fair pay. And there were really important ideas that were coming out of that. Yet, when we actually heard from the leaders, it was once again, and I think this is actually symbolic, to be honest, us sitting at the back and actively yep. listening after, despite all of the dynamic things that we had thought of and come up with earlier. So I found that on the international space, um, there has been space created for young people, which I appreciate, but I still have not seen at all that level of synergy. Um, and I've worked on you know, several communiques now written by young people, and I have to ask myself how many leaders will actually pick it up and give it the time of day. And so I have to say I'm a bit sceptical. So this is a really interesting, interesting thing that you yeah. raised there because so much of what you just shared there is is um, the starting point of, 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 a, uh, of inclusion, including young people at the table. The problem is all it fundamentally is is ceremonial. That's right. And, and of course, ceremony has place because ceremony is part of tradition and hopefully that can create standards that become habits that become culture. Ideally, that's a way to go. But until they are actually included in the real decision making, it is always going to be it's always going to be window dressing and it's always going to look very PC and it's going to look that yes, we are consulting, but it's not really there yet. Um, that, that's the challenge in schools, right? So many school yeah. leadership programs who advocate for student leaders because they really want good role models. They don't really invest in these young people in allowing these young people to come forward with with the challenges that they are facing and and to try and give them the, and, re, the, and resource them with the tools to create their own solutions. Often, often okay. it's it's a controlled environment, you know, even to the point where they're probably even reading their scripts and and, and editing the kids' scripts that are about to go up on stage. Uh, I think that's an abhorrent behaviour, but but it's, it's it's again it's all ceremonial. Um, and, and there's a degree of kind of, um, there's a legacy piece in that, you know, it's a hangover piece in that. And you kind of touched upon it too, Kerry, where, where, where you spoke about um, that notion of legacy as well, where, where people are still holding on to a status quo and a way of doing things that mm -hmm. is very antiquated. But at the heart of it, it's just, the, it comes down to them being fearful of the un unpredictability of what they think is unpredictable about these young people. But it's the same type of fear that they might have of someone else coming into their school that is foreign to them, right? Yeah, it's, it's not just young people. Yeah, yeah. So, so it impacts their comfort. It impacts their, their, their yeah. psychological safety. But I'm here to say that there's nothing to fear, right? Like on the weekend, I, I participated in a workshop with, with 15 remarkable young people from across Australia, and I included two of my ex-students as part of that workshop. And I had this dynamic conversation. I had young people in that group that have a uh, diagnosis of uh, neurodiversity. There were LGBT community young people in there. There were people of colour in that group. There were Indigenous Australians in that group. There were new migrants. There were people who'd been here for a very long time. There were high-functioning students on the spectrum. And there were, this was a melting pot. And I'm glad it was called Young Tra Trailblazers because it was it was a representation of what we could be and how we can leverage up as opposed to focusing on the deficit. Yeah, and should be. And should be. I want to interrupt. I want to say should be. This is, this yeah. is Australia. Australia isn't all my colour. Australia is now... Um, 
it is the melting pot, you know. It yep. is. Yep. I think it's one of the best things about Australia um, that we, we have nearly every every nationality, every culture here, and uh, we learn so much from each other. But our voice, our cultural voice, though, is an interesting part of it. So even... Yeah. I just wanted to be there also give... Because um, I think the examples I gave before may be examples of tokenistic things to do, but in terms of giving more, I guess, positive examples, just like Adriano said, I um, in terms of that diversity of young people, a couple of years ago I had the privilege and I really did feel like it was a privilege to lead um, the Youth Congress, which was a Victorian government initiative, and they had this fantastic youth strategy where they had consulted with so many young people across the state and they built up this Youth Congress, which was advising the then Minister for Youth. Um, and what was fantastic about that Congress is that there was an incredible diversity of young people, those that experienced homelessness, the some that were disabled, others that were like, you know, kind of, you know LGBTQ, um, that kind of thing. And I think what was really powerful is that not only were we developing policy and really thinking that, okay, we're in the driver's seat now, what do we want to see changed? And that a lot of that was focused on mental health policy, given that that obviously affects young people um, quite, uh, you know, acutely. But it was also the fact that the Minister for Youth actually listened, came down and sat down and listened yeah. to the conversation, said, thank you, you know, I'm going to be passing this on to the Minister for Health, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. We had policy experts come in and say, hey, this is how policy works. We want to hear your thoughts too, but here's the kind of fundamentals. So it was that really yeah. kind of nice dynamic of us getting the chance to have our say and think really critically about policy in a way that we'd never been able to before, but to bring in other actors. And again, this influence, this demonstrates the generational power. Those were the resources, the tools, the knowledge to help us kind of direct that energy and that, I guess, open-mindedness and new, new insights, direct it in a way that was, um, you know, tangible and, and, and you know, a good policy recommendation. And I saw kids that would start, and this is kids as young as 14 all the way up to 25, so a huge age diversity. From the beginning to the end, they'd start off in the beginning feeling unsure and you know not quite sure what to say. And by the end, they were saying, yeah. I'm so excited to go out into my community and lobby more and push more. And that's the power of when you actually put young people in the driver's seat. There's something about permission here, isn't there? There's some for me, there's something about permission. Uh, our, um, when you look back on your workforce um, employment or your family of origin, that word permission may not be said out loud, may, it, it, but it's it's subconscious thing. And it's often there that people don't think they have a voice or a permission to actually say what they feel because they will be subject to criticism, mm -hmm. um, bias, you know, bullying, whatever it happened, uh, because it's a different point of view from from the from the main pack, right? We're all we're we're pack um, um, organisms, aren't we? We, we? we like to run in a pack. So if you're an individual with a with a voice around some things, you're often seen as the loner or somebody who's out there who doesn't quite get what what you know how, how to go with the flow. So permission is a big thing as well, and I I love the fact that. You don't need permission at this point in time to actually use a bit of social media to, to put up your point of view. As a grandma now, though, when I look at my at the little people in our family, I think I'm learning more from them than I may have learnt from my children because I was so damn busy mm. trying to be perfect mum and working and all that sort of stuff. But now I learn a bit more. But I look at their voice and I look at them and I go, actually, they're not worried about what they say. You know, it's actually refreshing to hear, hear what they think, you know, the, what, what they do and their way that they are able to create and build the stories. So it's a new narrative that we've got here going. Yeah, I think this, for me, for me, you've just touched upon the real gift of young people. Um, what I've, what I've witnessed across now 26 years of being in education is that as each generation comes through, I'm seeing a different kind of consciousness in young people. And the generation that we have right now, the one that Yasmin is, is, is part of, I believe, and this is a generalisation, I appreciate it, but this is my, my experience that, uh, so far with, with these young people, is that we have a generation that have a deeper consciousness about mm. themselves, about their place in terms of the planet and their environment, whether it's locally, regionally or globally, 
and of course about the other. They have a deep consciousness about issues around resource scarcity, around climate change, around the, the swift advances in technology. They have a deep consciousness around urban, um, rapid urbanisation, about demographic shifts. They have a deep consciousness around uh, being responsible citizens around COVID or even digital citizens. Yes, there's bullying and harassment online. Like I, I can show you a hell of a lot of adults that are doing that as well as, as young people, right? We see it all the yep. time. And Twitter is one of the most toxic environments for that. But what I see is they have a deep consciousness about wanting to be part of a world or like I like to call it an ecosystem because it's about all living things on this planet. They have an awareness that is far more sophisticated and advanced than when I was their age. And it may, be, it may be because they have access now. There's a greater level of access to them, to information they perhaps once were yeah. shielded from or protected from or told that's not, that's not for a child to worry about. You know, that's yeah. that kind of legacy piece I'm talking about. I, yeah. see, them, I see them have um, a deeper sense of what it means to belong. I see them have a deeper sense of what it means to be seen, heard and valued, irrespective of race, ethnicity, age, religion, um, ability, identity, gender, or sexual orientation, they're, they're tuning in very differently. And this is where what I believe is the gift. This is where adults who often still live in their blind spots, who often still in the construct of fear, could mm -hmm. learn so much about this innocence that they bring to those things that I just mentioned. Yeah. And, and, their, their, and their inherent curiosity about working collaboratively to find solutions. I mean, some of these young people are the most remarkable solution architects I've ever met. Why wouldn't we then tap into people who seeing things from a different perspective? It would be the same, even it would be the same at my level where I, I can recall, um, you know, working in an organization once a long time ago where it was just men around the executive table. <laughs> and, and my first question was, who sits on panels for interviews? And they said, well, the three of us were similar. I said, so what will happen when, when a young woman or a woman comes in and sits down opposite us, who are they going to identify with? How are they going to be able to see their possibility in three middle-aged men asking questions? Do you not understand how intimidating that is? And all I'm doing is, is perpetuating a, a stereotype of, of, of the divide and the gender gap. And so what we can learn is from these young people continuously. Another quick example, because I'm going to stop talking. Um, another quick example is I remember um, at my previous school, the college captain in 2015, he, he was part Solomon Island and part Australian. This young man is one of the most remarkable humans I've ever met. And I was fortunate to go on a trip to Italy with him because he's a visual arts student, visual arts teacher. But he one day came to me and he said, you know, Mr. DeProto, um, this school does a really good job at, at acknowledging uh, Indigenous people, but I think we just give it lip service. <laughs> I, I, th I honestly think that we're just going through the motions. Yeah. And I sat there and I listened to him and I left that conversation with him being quite introspective going, huh, but I always think about Indigenous people. Yeah. I include them. But you know what? I didn't. Not, not to the way I did it in a very um, um, kind of, well, ceremonial way, like, like, like a, ceremonial. a respectful way, right? Because I felt, I felt compelled to do it. And I was coming from a place of, of really good intent, but I wasn't feeling it. Mm. I wasn't feeling their hurt. I wasn't feeling their pain. And I wasn't entering into a place that allowed them to heal. So I took it upon myself to go and get educated about this. And it was a young man that helped enlighten me on this. And I started working with the Wurundjeri Council in, in Collingwood to become more and more in tune with that. And in fact, we co-wrote, the students, the, myself and them, the Indigenous people of the local area, co-wrote the Acknowledgement of Country uh, statement for the school. And then we developed a, a particular heritage garden there that was powerfully symbolic. And what was profound about that was that we had Indigenous students who came and then said, thank you for seeing us. That's different to getting up there and simply reading an acknowledgement. This was, then about, this was then about including them in telling their story and making sure that they're heard. And this is what I mean about the remarkableness of young people, that there's an unafraidness from them about just telling it as it is. And we shouldn't be afraid of that. I'm not afraid of that. I wasn't, yeah. I, he wasn't insulting me. He wasn't having a go at me. He was simply asking me, to consider how we could do this in a way that made them feel truly seen. So you listened, you listened well, and you heard and you heard. So I think that's the difference. We can all listen, but we may not hear.
Mm. So we've in the what we've just been talking about, we've actually named a number of skills, I think, that our our students really need for the future to thrive. Because for me, thriving doesn't mean everything is happy and go lucky and having a great time doing everything. Thriving is that you are navigating, exploring how you're going to respond to different situations, different pressures, different challenges and different ways of achieving. So for thriving in your life and work, um, it's, it's, it's the way forward. Now, most of the research and literature at the moment around workforce and what, you know, what's going to happen with people in the world of work and employment talks about the relational skills, which are often looked at as soft skills. Well, for me, they are no longer soft skills. They are essential skills, the social and emotional skills. So if I said to you, Yasmin, what is it that you've noticed, particularly this year? Are there some skills that you are thinking, wow, this, these have really held us as young people in good stead for navigating what the pandemic has, has um, changed for us? Mm -hmm. And if we were to say what we want for the future, what are, the, so what are some of those skills that you'd like to bring forward? Yeah, I was having a think about this and I was thinking about what kind of skills are essential for young people to have, but the actual skills that I was coming up with, I realised that they are already inside of young people and already inside of all of us. And for example, yeah. one of them was the power of empathy. And by empathy, I think we are all have empathy inside of us, but I think what's kind of a powerful next step to empathy is being able to position oneself. And that includes um, you know, recognizing, for example, if we're talking about indigenous people, what does it mean that I'm not indigenous and living on Australia, which is unceded land? What does that actually mean? And that's a complex question, but I actually think um, you know, encouraging young people or facilitating that kind of reflective and introspection is really powerful when we go out into the workforce and eventually hold positions of power and operating in structures, whether visible or not, that can often, you know, hold a certain favour, a certain group or, you know, that, and it, that kind of considerations. I think if we could start with that empathy on a school level um, to recognise that, you know, we, not only do we not have all the answers, but to think about what is my place in this world? And I think one of the most powerful things that I've shared with Adriana before was when I did a public speaking speech about my mum in year 11. And that was really actually the first time I thought critically about what it means to be the daughter of a migrant woman. Before then, I think I had kind of passively thought about it, but I'd never actually sat back and been invited to reflect on it and being yes. given that platform whether it just be you know, a small public speaking competition, change my life. So if we can facilitate more of that, I think would be um, incredibly powerful. And the other two skills that I was thinking about was, I think first, as we all probably know, as we're speaking all virtually right now, is that idea of adaptability. And if we think about COVID, this is only a drop in the ocean if we think about climate change. And more than ever, we need systems that can adapt quickly and rapidly. And that seems like the absolute opposite when we talk about existing policy today. So thinking about the adaptability of systems, I think is, is particularly powerful. And the final thing is hope. And what I mean by that is that we live in a world where it's very easy to slip into the darkness of all, yes. not only the pandemic, but again, climate and then all these social issues and everything, and including as a young person, it can be really overwhelming. But I think the power of engaging with hope which is something that i do in my work every single day whether it's talking about young people women people of color um, creating a better more inclusive society that's all driven by hope and it is one of the most powerful things for a young person to have because it makes that it gives them something to strive for it gives them a, a vision and future that they can see in their minds and push towards so i think if we all can hold on to that combined with that empathy it could change the world Pretty powerful cocktail, isn't it? No, maybe no, no, maybe not a cocktail, an equation. I, I, I'm going to change that. Oh, that's a. <laughs> I'll change that. Not that a cocktail. I'm, 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 I'm going to have a bit of a cocktail right yeah. now. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but I, I just, I really love that because empathy is often misunderstood, and um, and how I, I, I go for what what are the behaviours? What would we be seeing people doing? And I think that's a, an easier way than um, 
then looking at it sort of um, philosophically, it's it's how we, what does this look like in action? So what does hope look like in action? What does empathy look like in action? What's a quick response or adaptability? Well, every one of us this year has adapted and continues to adapt. Um, when I was a young mum, I used to say to people, you know, well, they say, oh, how was your day? Well, I'd say, well, well, I pretty well adapted to the changes of the flat tyre, getting four kids to school, blah, 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 you know, and it went on and on and on. You know, the phone call that said, whoops, you've forgotten to pay this bill or, or what, in those days you got a phone call about that. Um, yeah. But, um, you know, it is that, that notion of being adaptable and that change is probably the only thing that is not in our control and is a constant in our life. <laughs> well, change is definitely the new normal, you know. Um, I know from um, my particular context, you know, this this is right in my wheelhouse, you know, carry around the idea of competency or competency frameworks. So that's what we talk about in schools and education all the time. I love yes. that uh, Yasmin has, has touched upon the, the profoundness of emotional competency. I really believe that's the new knowledge base. Uh, I, I also... Um, uh, like the uh, the notion of adaptability and the, and the self-efficacy kind of angle that, that you've gone down. But for, for mine, you know, we know that we have to prepare young people for, for this uncertain future. And that might, I don't want that to sound negative, but the reality is it's a, it's a future that you just described, Kerry, as in constant state of flux. That's, yeah. that's the real, that's the new normal. And, and what we have to do is if we do focus on emotional competency and adaptability, that will enable us to continue to support young people around their mental health uh, and around their physical health health, and, and being so self-aware of that construct because we know in Australia that is one of the biggest pandemics. That, you know, Mission Australia just came out with their latest report where they interviewed 28,000 young Australians and it was listed as number two, as, the, as, as number three on their list of, of things. And there was only small percentages between one, two and three in terms of what really is, is significant to them right now. Yeah. And from my perspective, there are kind of three constructs or three buckets of competency. There is one that centres around foundational literacies, which for me is about the ways of knowing mm -hmm. and doing. But it's not just literacy and numeracy. It's science thinking, digital yep. literacy, financial literacy and enterprise thinking. For me, they should become the financial, they should become the foundational literacies that young people are going to need to help them thrive in this new world that we're living in. The second kind of bucket is a capability skill bucket, one that looks at creativity, collaboration, connectivity, um, critical thinking, communication. And for me, I like to call that kind of ways of thinking, right? And then the third bucket is what we've been talking about here, this emotional competency one. Where, where I like to frame it as a character disposition or a character attribute around perseverance and grit, around curiosity, adaptability, around agency and advocacy, around, um, you know, this mental wellness and physical wellness, around cultural and intercultural awareness and around ethics. Yeah. Because we're living in a world of, of, of technology and we need to know where ethics come into place. And for me, that last bucket, yeah. the first bucket was really about knowing and doing. The second one was around thinking. But this last bucket is really about being and becoming. You know, um, and, and, you know, schools are dynamic communities of living people. You know, we should never forget that each young person in our care in schools is home to a life. If we don't start with the construct of wellness first and their wellness and our wellness, then we're failing everyone. And the, the other thing that goes with that, Adriana and Yasmin, I think, is that uh, when we have all these students in our schools, we get the whole package. Mm-hmm. We don't get just a bit of them that says, this is where you're going to go and learn, blah, 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 and that's all you're going to do. We actually get the whole package. It's like our teachers. It's like our families. We actually get the whole package of a person that we interact with, that we build our relationships with. And that that often is pro um, can be the hardest part of the realisation that they're not our kids and our schools in particular are not just for learning or for someone to teach them something they actually have to um, involve their whole being, as you said. Absolutely. The whole notion of curiosity and voice comes into that. So. Yeah, it's, it's definitely around this notion of the whole of learning. I mean, surely, surely the purpose of education is to help young people understand the world around them and engage the world within them. I don't think it needs to be more complicated than that. It's simple but complex okay. at the same time, you know. Um, the other thing is that, that schools have to be open to the to the full development of the human possibility of each person in, in their community uh, and and they schools need to start embracing 
the unique diversity uh, and, and the endeavor of to simply be more instead of having more. And this is why I'm really hopeful. I love that word that, that Yasmin has just used there, hope. It, it's one that's um, really important to me uh, and, and my faith and something that has continued to enable me to wake up brave and unafraid each day because it, it fills me with uh, great optimism uh, and, and hope is about fundamentally respecting what has happened. That's the humility component, but also with an eye of what could be. And that's we're creatures of human. Humans are great creatures of endeavor. You know, why should we remain hope filled, not hopeless? Um, yeah, so I'm really glad that Yasmin brought that. Beautiful, beautiful word. Okay, so the skills for the future, for thriving. So let's just talk a little bit more about um, diversity, equity, inclusion, because I think we've got we've got about five minutes um, till the end of the show. So I'd love you to have a crack at. Um, I'm going to let Yasmin go for this because this is right in her wheelhouse. So, so Yasmin, tell us what's the role of diversity, equity, inclusion in education, to, and and how we go forward. Hmm. I was reflecting on this question, and I think what's interesting is that we already have diversity, including in schools. There's already cohorts of young people that are already um, incredibly diverse. The difference is how that school actually navigates that. And I think what this, not only this pandemic, but the world that we live in now has taught us that one leader will never have all of the answers. And the power is actually not only bringing people to a decision-making table, yeah. but maybe even removing the table entirely and sitting on the floor. That's the kind of future that I want to see where we can incorporate all kinds of views and perspectives. So I think in a way, if, school, if schools can already um, not only role model that in terms of how they embody equity, and that includes incorporating the voices of young people, that includes, um, you know, being a leader in terms of um, Indigenous and recognising, you know, obviously, um, um, paying respect to those on, you know, the fact that we are Indigenous land. It's all of these kinds of things, but I think it's also important for young people to even visually see this. And I think, you know, I was even, I was uh, speaking to a lovely young girl who comes from um, a South Sudanese background and she's a high schooler. And she shared with me that, oh, you know, I've, I've felt this experiences of racism in my school. And I told a teacher and the teacher said, oh, don't worry, I'm blonde and I get called the dumb blonde all the time. And wow. it was so disheartening to hear about. And you just have to think if these are the kind of messages that already people in education are sending, yeah. how on earth are we going to be thinking and including, you know, all of the cohort, not only just people affected, by lack of diversity or equity. So I think really a holistic view is important because it's not only improving the environment of the school, it's raising generations of young people that are really thinking critically again about their role in society. And I, and I think that kind of, again, I guess I go back to empathy here, that, that starting with that empathy and recognizing that we don't all have the answers and, and the role of equity and diversity in that space. It's really powerful when we think about what kind of young people we're raising for the future as well. I'm going to say to you, what have you seen anything this year or became aware, aware of it or was involved in it that has given you great hope around around the way we need to, to move forward? Yeah, there was, um, yeah, there was an initiative I was involved with this year called the Girls 20 and it runs alongside the G20 each year. So we were meant to be in Saudi Arabia. Um, but obviously it was, it was through Zoom this time, but it was all young people across G20 nations, all the way from Saudi Arabia to the African Union to the EU. There was, it was all, all representative and it was all young women that were passionate about advancing the cause of, you know, young, young people and, and women and feminism and all of that. And the level of um, dynamic um, enthusiasm, excitement and power and also the common thread of all of us as young women um, was actually one of the most powerful things I've experienced because I realised that this goes beyond Australia as well. It is, mm. you know, this is actually thinking globally about the power of young people. And there were young women that had started their own, you know, social enterprise and startups, others that were, you know, working already in government and pushing for, for gender in that space. Um, and I think what it just kind of hammered home, um, you know, how fortunate I am to be in this moment and to be able to share that platform with young women and everything that we collectively had to offer um, made me really 
I don't know, it just gave me a sense of, I guess, belonging in a, on a global level, which I've never really considered before. I think, you know, from my, my perspective, Kerry, um, the re-election of Jacinta Ardern in New Zealand by a landslide, by a landslide victory, because prior to that, of course, she, she formed a minority government. That's right. Um, and it was a coalition, but now this was in a landslide, suggested to me that there are parts of this world that are starting to be open to the possibility of strength and vulnerability coexisting. And together. And, together. and for me, what Jacinta Ardern represents is exactly that. A, a, a woman who is quite powerful in her position and who mm. exerts her strength when it's required. We saw her response to the Christchurch disaster and of course the response to COVID-19 in her country. But in both times, in both times, we also saw tenderness and vulnerability. And she wasn't afraid to simply be to, to lean into her truth, right? And and we, what we should realise is that neither one of those things cancel each other out, or neither one of them are more significant. Yes. But together, they are profound. Yes. And, and what for me, what she did was that in the wake of the Christchurch disaster, is that she gave uh, those people who were victims, but also other New Zealanders, uh, a deep sense of belonging. She yes. made them feel that they mattered. She made sure they were seen and they were heard. And for me, you know, Yasmin, you, you talked about um, removing the table and, and kind of like this campfire environment. And I love the metaphor for that and, and the symbolism of it. But, you know, without belonging, without a person truly feeling they belong and truly feeling they feel they are known, loved or valued, that they will never, they'll never flourish. And so it has to start with that wellness construct, right? Because ultimately as a community, we exist because of each other, not in spite of one another. Mm. And the more and more we realise that and we look to examples like a Jacinta Ardern who, who continues to include, you know, uh, the Indigenous people of New Zealand in everything. I mean, she's just appointed the first ever Maori to the foreign ministry yes. office in the history yes. of that country. Yes, they've had females in positions of responsibility yes. there, uh, but that, that is profound, right? So I'm, I'm going to be really interested yes. to see all these foreign ministers in the world being confronted by, by uh, 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 this this beautifully powerfully looking woman um, who's going to be challenging them naturally. Oh, yeah, that's right. But who's going to be yeah. challenging them naturally about how we do yeah. foreign affairs, right? Are we going to remain borderless, or are we going to start being open to the possibility of others? You know, she's appointed the the first openly gay deputy prime minister to a position. I mean, she's she's walking it. She's walking the talk. So it just again, it, it, this is an example of how it could be and has the sky fallen in New Zealand have the sheep lost all their all their all their wool is has the economy collapsed <laughs> no it hasn't <laughs> but there's something about readiness as well isn't there yeah i agree with you i absolutely agree with you you, you have to be ready for it but you there's know something about readiness. But, but she helped them get to that point yes thing, yes right? yes and, and and you know what was powerful about her example is she didn't manage crisis she led through a crisis mm. And I think there's a markedly di market difference in that. Yeah. And, too, and too I think she also needs people. Sorry, sorry, okay. but too many people. No, no, and I'll just when you said that, want to manage crises because it's just about doing stuff to get it done. But but you can lead through a crisis because that's that gives people then the hope that they need that they can yeah. see something at the end that's going to be uh, a, a kind of that rainbow. That's right. Well, she she led the, she led people. She was a leader of people. Yeah. And, and that came, that was the major consideration, I believe, before all the, the economics or the, or the decision-making. Oh, my gosh, what a great conversation tonight, you two. Do, I, mean, awesome. I reckon oh, this could go on forever and ever, but you know what? Um, I'm just going to say if you had one last thought that you'd like to put out and just sprinkle the universe with, because we're global, we get, we're going everywhere. We'll uh, we'll strip this audio off and we'll use it on on the Thriving Matters podcast as well. So it's going to go a little bit further than what we thought tonight would be. So if you had some 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 magic dust, what would you like to sprinkle as uh, one of your last thoughts, insights tonight? Adriana, I think you go first. I feel like you have some nuts on hand. I'm letting you go first because I'm being very chivalrous. Oh, I see, I see. <laughs> um, yes, I suppose, the, I guess from what I've been hearing and what I've been thinking through this whole discussion is that we are all interdependent. 
we're not all stuck in our own respective boxes. If we think about intergenerational learning, we are interdependent in an increasingly uncertain, um, complex, perhaps even volatile world. We need each other in order to become we better do. and collectively better. So the first step is recognising if we are all interdependent, all of us, it's all of our collective responsibility to bring everybody along. Thank you. Um, what I'll share with you is that I just continue to have great optimism for the great adventure of being brave and afraid at the same time. Yeah. And, and, and that uh, I would love more of us to choose the construct of love because love is a verb and we need more kind of action words like that. Um, that we continue to choose courage over comfort, hope and love over fear. It's exhilarating, it's affirming, and people should just try it. Just try it. Just try it. One of my, one of my mantras is just give it a red hot shot. So exactly. listeners, thank you so much for your company tonight. If you would like to know more about either of my two guests tonight, um, Yasmin, you you're on most socials aren't you but what's what's the best contact what would you if people are interested in finding out more about you where would they you like them to go well if you want to hear any voice and political opinions i think my twitter is probably the best base <laughs> um so yeah i'm cool on there um professional linkedin and i'm also on instagram so any medium really i'm pretty open thank you so much and adriano uh, i i'm i'm trying to get hip with the kids these days so i'm sticking with uh with um obviously Twitter and Instagram and uh, and of course the professional platform of, of LinkedIn. So anyone can contact me at those points. That's, that's right. And listeners, if you'd like to know more about what I do, carriebenedette.com uh, website, but you know, I'm on most socials. You know that your thriving matters. You are precious beyond words and together we are great. So you're, just keep, keep in mind, um, anyone who is um, who has found the pandemic extremely difficult, our thoughts and love are with you. Um, for those of us who have got grand ideas, let's start the butterfly wings flapping. Find out, contact Yasmin, follow her and uh, Adriano's work. They are entrepreneurial innovators in the education space, but more importantly, in the people space. Over to you. Thanks so much. I'll last next week, I must say, is our final show, um, our final panel for the uh, for the year, and we will have a drop-in session. So some of our guests are dropping back in to say hi to you. So we've got a number of those lined up. So have a drink of choice. I think I'll actually have a little cocktail. With you next Tuesday night. So just, uh, you never know who's going to pop in. Um, Thriving Matter Studio. Give us a like. Um, over to you. Take care of your good selves. Thanks, guys. Thank See you very much, Carrie. Bye. Bye. I'm Carrie Benedett, and this is my podcast, Thriving Matters.